ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. I'm Hilary Harper. Lovely to be with you. In the federal budget, the government announced a 15% wage increase for aged care workers. Not childcare workers, though, who've long been calling for a 25% increase. The debate continues over how those caring jobs should be valued financially and socially, but it raises the question, should wage levels for essential workers, educators, nurses, care workers, be set by the market or the government? This is Life Matters from the lands of the Kulin Nation. There was a big pay increase for aged care workers in this year's budget. Might the government take action in other sectors where vulnerable Australians are going to need care? New rules have changed the landscape at the Fair Work Commission when it comes to pay equity. We'll hear a bit more about that soon. But I'd love to hear your view on how much the government should intervene in wages, especially for underpaid workers in sectors like childcare and aged care. I would love to hear your thoughts, especially if you're in one of those sectors. Joining us is Emeritus Professor Sarah Charlesworth. RMIT College of Business and Law. She's been an expert advisor to the aged care work value case. Sarah, welcome. Thank you very much, Hilary. And Professor Robert Bruning too is with us. He's a leading public policy economist for the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. Robert, great to have you here. Good morning, Hilary. Thanks. Uh, Sarah, I'll start with you. You worked on the aged care value case at Fair Work. Tell us briefly what was involved in that process. Um, Well, Hilary, that case was uh, a work value case mounted by three of the um, aged care unions asking for a 25% wage increase. The initial claim was made in November 2020. In um, November 2022, the Fair Work Commission decided on a 15% interim wage increase. That case is still going on um, and it may be that there will be additional um, uh, wage increases for the direct uh, care staff, uh, both you know, nurses, home care workers, personal care workers, etc., in aged care, um, but that resulted in that fifteen uh, percent wage increase, which has now just been funded by the government in the uh, last budget. So, was there anything unprecedented about the the government's action around aged care? How, how often does the government intervene in wages? Well, it didn't so much intervene, Hilary. Um, what happened was that um, the uh, unions bought the case, but given that the Commonwealth substantially funds aged care, as it does early childhood, um, the case was put um, that after the Commission decided on the 15% interim wage case, the uh, Albanese government had indicated when they came in that they would meet the costs of any wage increase out of this work value case. And so um, that's exactly what they've done. So what would have happened if they hadn't agreed to meet the costs, if the Fair Work Commission had said, yep, go for it, uh, but the government had said no? I think that's a really interesting question, Hilary, and it kind of arose in a much earlier case that the um, units had taken in early childhood back in 2013. That case went on for um, five years and produced no result. But in that case, um, the... Uh, government wasn't um, hadn't hadn't said that it would fund any wage increase if indeed it was awarded. So I think, in reality, politically, unless the main funder, if if you like, because it's really the funder who determines the um, wages to a large extent in the sector, unless they're on board, 
I would uh, imagine it would be hard for the Fair Work Commission to decide to award a wage increase that they didn't know was going to be paid. That's interesting though, isn't it? I mean, the Fair Work Commission would obviously be making the decision based on a whole range of factors. Could it theoretically make a decision that said it's really important that these wages go up? This is a really crucial sector. It's a public good, this sector. Absolutely. Could they kind of make a, a, a decision on principle, even if the government had said they wouldn't fund it? Absolutely they could. But I suppose then the practical reality would be left. You have this 15% wage increases. Employers in the aged care sector have said there's no way we could pay for these um, the, the, these wage increases. And I imagine that in the um, early, well, certainly the employers then said there's no way we can pay for these increases that wage increases you're wanting because it would impact on the fees charged to parents in um, early childhood. And indeed, um, the aged care providers said this will mean that we will be unable to uh, you know, run our um, aged care uh, services unless the government meets these um, additional costs. That does raise, though, the question of the extent to which the substantial funding that the government provides both in aged care and early childhood is actually um, paid uh, in, in, in wages to workers, what proportion of it is paid. We have a surprising lack of transparency in what happens in these significant government funding areas and it would be good to see um, more accountability for funding and that's certainly one of the uh, unions involved in the work value case in aged care has argued there really needs to be absolute accountability for the additional funding that the federal government will be paying to meet this 15% wage increase in terms of making absolutely sure it's spent on the um, workers that it should be being spent on. We're speaking with Emeritus Professor Sarah Charlesworth at RMIT College of Business and Law, who's been an expert advisor to the aged care work value case. Professor Robert Brunig is a guest uh, on Life Matters too, a leading public policy economist at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy about the decision that's been made at the Fair Work Commission, backed by the government, to substantially raise aged care uh, workers' pay rates, how could that affect or what implications could that have for other sectors that are crying out for pay rises as well? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this at any point during this discussion. Dean in Templestowe says, if only we had strong, powerful unions who could fight for those exploited by a system that prioritises profits over people. Robert Brunig, from an economics point of view, should the government intervene to fix low wages? So it's it's a good question, Hillary. Um, and I, I think I would just start out by sort of saying, where do wages come from? And and where they come from is essentially two things. One is value and one is productivity. Value meaning how we financially value or socially value things? Value meaning how we financially value. When we socially value things like childcare, then that's when the government often gets involved. So if you think about industries in which there is no government involvement at all, wages are driven by people's willingness to pay, uh, and then that flows through to, to workers. We think that productivity combined with competition means that workers will get paid a fair amount. So if I've hired you and I'm not paying you your productivity, then my competitor can hire you away and offer you a, a higher wage. So we think that that combination of the market and competition for workers should drive wages to an appropriate level. The two sectors we're talking about here, aged care and childcare, are pretty different than that, right? Both of these sectors have very, very heavy 
government involvement. Government is paying uh, for the for most in age care. Government's paying for for almost all of it in child care, a little bit less. And that means the government's kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? Because they're trying to make as much of this service available to people as they can. In order to do that, they need to keep costs down. And so what we've seen is a lot of downward pressure on cost in both childcare and aged care to try to make it as affordable as we can for as many people as we can. So to return to the original question, uh, does that mean that the only option is for the government to intervene? It's, it's not the only option. There are other options. I, I think it is interesting to step back and sort of say, what would the world look like if there were no government intervention? Um, I know childcare quite well. Uh, I've written quite a few papers about childcare. My wife actually runs a long daycare center, uh, so I have a lot of contextual knowledge as well. And what would happen if we didn't have government subsidies for childcare is we would have a lot less childcare. Yep. We would have uh, a lot more women staying at home taking care of their kids instead of working. We would have childcare that's cheaper because we wouldn't have those subsidies pushing up prices, but people would be paying more out of pocket because they would be getting the subsidies. And we probably would have higher wages because the only people who would be buying childcare are the people who really want to pay for it. And can pay for it. And can I imagine pay for a it, lot of, of people would want to pay for it, and that's the situation now, isn't it? Exactly. And you know, the reason that we provide uh, government subsidies for aged care and childcare exactly is because there are some people who can't pay for it. We think those goods are goods that should be provided by our society. I guess one of the real problems in aged care is that we are making aged care available to everybody irrespective of their ability to pay. And so I do think at some point we are going to have to revisit that. We are going to have to ask people to contribute to their aged care. And as Sarah was saying, you know, these centers, uh, the aged care centers, they're running it at very low profit margins. They, if, if we put a 15% wage increase on them without increasing the money the government gets them, they would either shut down or they would provide lower quality service or they would have to charge people a bit more. They probably should be charging people a bit more, but those people who can afford to pay. It's interesting with the childcare argument because you can mount an economic argument, can't you, that you would get greater productivity across the board if you could get those women uh, having those opportunities. If, even if we just put aside for a moment the equity argument that it would be great for women if they could have the same opportunities as their male partners in heterosexual relationships to have career advancement, to narrow the pay gap, to lessen the you know parlous difference in super at the end of their lives. Are those arguments that should weigh on this these decisions? around pay in childcare? I think they should. Uh, and I think some of the productivity increases, pro probably half the productivity increases we've seen in the last 20 years have come from women coming into the labor market. I think we're now at a point in Australia where uh, we've actually probably exhausted a lot of those gains. Our, our labor force participation rates for women are actually pretty close to those for men now. They're pretty high relative to other countries. Really, the question now is probably more around the part-time, full-time uh, trade-off for women and the effect of, of childcare subsidies. And, you know, I guess it's also another question that you might want to ask is a child care operator today could go out and offer a more expensive child care product. They could say, I'm only going to hire university educated child care uh, workers. I'm going to offer a really premium product and I'm going to charge twice what the market is paying. But we don't see people doing that. And in aged care, we, we actually see the same thing, right? We see that. I've talked to several financial planners who've told me stories about, you know, children who come in with an aging parent and they say to the children, 
your parents have a lot of money. We can put them in a in a five star uh, residential aged care, and the children say, no, no, we'll we'll go with the cheap. We'll go with the cheap version, right? So, I do think there is a question about how much people are actually willing to pay for these things, and. I value childcare and aged care a lot, and a lot of the people in this space who talk about it, we value it a lot. But, but if the average consumer is not prepared to pay for it, and the average voter is not prepared to vote for it, then we kind of need a national conversation where we talk about why these things are important. We're happy to be part of that conversation here today mm. on Life Matters. My name is Hilary Harper, and we're speaking with Robert Brunig, uh, uh, Professor Robert Brunig, leading public policy economist at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy, and Emeritus Professor Sarah Charlesworth from RMIT College of Business and Law. And hearing your thoughts too, I mean, these are big conversations, aren't they? They're, they're really interesting arguments, all centering on this pay rise for aged care workers and what that might mean for other sectors. And uh, Sarah Charlesworth, I wanted to ask you about how wage increases are won generally. What, what is it about? Is it good timing, government priorities? What, what works well? Well, um, wage increases, which are basically uh, go into the relevant awards, which uh, sit in the Fair Work Act, for which the Fair Work Commission is responsible. So, um, there were some significant um, and really important changes made to the Fair Work Act last year, and they create possibly three avenues um, to achieve wage increases. One is through, and I understand the um, United Workers Union is considering um, a multi-employer bargaining um, system, which is now called supported bargaining. It used to be called the low-paid bargaining stream. And they would then um, seek to work with a number of employers, um, childcare employers, EC employers, uh, to then achieve an agreement. And under that system, the Fair Work Commission has the power to bring a party that has substantial control over the terms and conditions of that group of workers to the bargaining table. And in this case, it would be the federal government because they're clearly the funders. So that's one route. That would, though, only provide wage increases for those uh, employees who are covered by the employer's party to that enterprise agreement. The other way is through um, an equal pay case, and that's, uh, as I said before, the um, the union had started an equal pay case for um, early childhood educators back in 2013. In 2015, under the old um, pay equity provisions, the Fair Work Commission decided no, you have to compare wages with a male comparator and um, the manufacturing workers were chosen as a comparator and then uh, another three years later, the Fair Work Commission decided that that wasn't an appropriate comparator. So after five years, no doubt very resource, very financially expensive, the um, union came away empty-handed. However, under the changes last year, the um, equal remuneration or pay equity provisions have been substantially revamped and they really provide that um, you don't need a male comparator, that the commission has got to look at gendered undervaluation in sectors that historically, um, you know, women have worked historically in those sectors. So the early childhood sector would be a good case for that, but one would understand because those cases are very expensive to run, um, the reluctance of the union to pursue that. A third um, route to increased wages would be making an application to vary the award wages, 
which would also cover all employees covered by a particular award. For example, the Children's Services Award is one of the main awards in early childhood. And now the um, object of that, what we call the modern award objective, has changed. And one of the um, things now that the uh, one of the aspects the Fair Work Commission has to take into account is the need to achieve gender equality by ensuring equal remuneration for work of equal or comparable value, eliminating gender-based undervaluation of work and providing workplace conditions that facilitate women's full economic participation. So those changes make um, possibly taking either a work value case or simply a variation to award wages much more um, likely to be successful given in female-dominated areas like early childhood, given that these are factors now that the Fair Work has to commission, the Fair Work Commission has to consider. And it's also helped by the fact that under the changes last year, two new expert panels were established in the Fair Work Commission, one considering matters to do with pay equity and one considering matters to do with care and community services. So this broader um, care sector, if you like, mm. and in cases where there's a pay equity case in care and community services, those two panels come together. And those panels are constituted of um, full-time commissioners uh, of the Fair Work Commission who have expertise in either pay equity or care and community services, and also by part-time members uh, who may have been appointed. So the the um, I think that that possibility is um, quite an exciting one, quite frankly. It really provides perhaps um, fairly a simpler route than um, going through uh, an equal remuneration case. Yet some of those interesting conversations are happening now. Just finally and very quickly, Bob Brunig, the, the coalition last year argued that low-paid work is an important feature of the economy. Is that true? Is there is there a view among economists that it is a, a, a necessary structural feature to have some people paid very low wages? I don't think that's a necessary structural feature of an economy. It is a feature of every economy that we see because there are some jobs that involve very little skill, uh, that have low productivity, and that people don't particularly value. Is that every economy we see or every capitalist economy we see? No, I think it's every economy we see. I think it comes out even in economies where, I mean, it's it's probably worse in North Korea where every everybody's undervalued. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure you, you want a, a different system. And I, I think in developing countries, you find a similar thing, right? So um, it's, you know, at, at the end of the day, if, if we want to raise wages um, for low-wage workers, it's really about productivity. And a lot of these sectors like childcare like healthcare, there are potential gains to productivity. We can improve people's qualifications. We can improve the way people do their job. Technology, I think, is going to give us possibilities to increase productivity, and that will flow through to increased wages. Uh, but these are sectors where productivity is difficult to measure because it's not you're not just producing tennis balls, right? You're, you, and, and part of the productivity story is a quality story, right? Better, high, higher quality childcare is more productive childcare. But that's very difficult to measure. And certainly if you look at workloads, I reckon there'd be a large sector of those workers in those fields who'd be saying we are fairly productive already. Yeah, well, product productivity, so people often confuse that and they think it means working harder. It doesn't. Actually, productivity means producing more with the same amount of work, right? So it's, it's actually working better, working smarter, working less, hopefully. I think you need to talk to some employers, Bob Brunig. Thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> 
Thanks, Hilary. Great to have you here. Professor Robert Brunig, leading public policy economist at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. Emeritus Professor Sarah Charlesworth, great to chat with you today. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Hilary. Bye-bye. Sarah's from RMIT College of Business and Law. She was an expert advisor to the aged care work value case. So many texts on this, hearing about whether or not intervention for low-paid workers should occur, says one, but there's been implicit government support for high-paid workers at the big four consultancy firms for years. Almost 10 years ago, they say, I was seeing contracts as a public servant where these firms were being paid $5,000 a day for doing government jobs. It's only gone up since. What is the government's job, says another text, to take take care of the populace and protect them from being exploited. Mostly, they should try harder. A few different views coming in too, but great to hear your thoughts throughout the program today on Life Matters. Up next, every death is unique, so palliative care needs to adapt to that. In a moment, we'll hear some of the ways that services are helping people to live their best lives for as long as possible. Kick off your evening with a world of ideas. 6pm every weeknight, right here on ABCRN. Covering everything from your health to the law, the influence of faith and religion on current affairs to economics and the world of tech. Keep up to date with the issues and news you won't hear anywhere else. Every weeknight at 6pm, right here on ABCRN. If you ask five different people what a good life means to them, you might get five very different answers. And it's the same with death, potentially. What do you want that time to look like if you have some control over it? Who do you want to be there in those final days? Where would you like to be? What atmosphere would you like around you? A new documentary looks at some of the different ways people answer those questions and how palliative care can open up options beyond the hospital bed. Your thoughts, very welcome. Mike Hill is the director of Live the Life You Please, a film that's out now on this. Uh, Mike, welcome. Thank you for having me on. Great to have you here. And Simon Waring is a father, a palliative care advocate and the film's presenter. Simon, nice to meet you. Indeed. Good morning. Nice to be here. Simon, the film starts with the words joy, fulfilment, happiness and love. Why are those things that you think are associated with discussions around the end of life? Because that's exactly um, what we experienced. Um, one of my sons had uh, paediatric uh, cancer and uh, we, with, through palliative care, we had an extraordinary experience by keeping him at home. And uh, it means that you uh, can share the most extraordinary experience with a loved one. Um, siblings, family, everyone can be involved. So palliative care supported us to do that. Well, and a lot of people might think of palliative care as for older people, but how important is it to get the, the palliative care approach right for children? Oh, it's critical. And in some ways, uh, it's even more complicated because those little bodies, there's so much going on. Um, but palliative care is so much more than you think. So Yes, essentially it has to maintain pain and so you're chasing the pain to keep that child in perfect comfort. But palliative care is also about all the other supports. It can be the equipment that you need to maybe assist with mobility. It can be different therapies, physical. It can be psycho and social support for the child through art therapy, music therapy, but also the siblings, the carers. Um, when you think of someone who's uh, dying, it's, um, they're supported by a carer 
but they're also supported by the community and palliative care actually helps so many people and I think that's one of the messages we, the film shows people what is actually possible at end of life. Well and as you say it's the whole community not just the family but the people who might want to come and say goodbye. Uh, is palliative care able to support visitors to, to kind of be part of that environment that's wrapped around the, the family? Yes, and I, it's really about um, empowering families, um, allowing people to, to understand what's possible. Um, and that was something that we definitely did. We tried to create an environment around my son Marmaduke where there was no fear, no fear about we absolutely refused to have whispered conversations um, or tense energy anywhere near him because he was just living, waking up each day trying to enjoy life because he was just a four-year-old living life. And so he wasn't defined by his illness. But it also meant, um, you've also got to remember at that stage, I was probably running on adrenaline. <laughs> and so you're doing everything that you can, but you've got experts on the end of a phone. You might have a nurse dropping into the, to the home, maybe only for 15, 20 minutes, but just to change some equipment. And so that support is critical. Yeah, we're speaking with Simon Waring, who's uh, been through an experience of needing palliative care, very difficult time in his life. He's presenting a new documentary directed by Mike Hill called Live the Life You Please that looks at how that period at the end of life can be about the life rather than the death that's coming. Mike, this is such a delicate time to be entering people's lives. What it was like, was it like to be going in with a camera? I mean, I watched this film last night and some of the stories are so powerful. How did you manage being around for those those periods of time? Well, isn't it a precious gift to be, you know, asked into people's lives when they know time is now limited? It was an amazing win-win um, where we got to capture stories that really, uh, you know, harness the power of what um, a good final chapter of life can look like. But we also felt like um, the generosity of these stories was that they also got the chance to share things that were really important to them. And there were some common themes that ran through a lot of these stories. Such as? So, I mean, it's the things you, you might expect, but you always need those reminders about don't sweat the small stuff. Um, spend that quality time with your loved ones and time and time again we heard that people as far as they could be would like to be at home and doing things that they love and enjoy and feel passionate about so everyone's end of life experience is going to be individual and different um, and we really tried to highlight that in the film how did you find it I, I've, I've cried the whole way through. Obviously, there was there was incredible stories, yeah. and some of them were very, uh, very kind of resonant with my experience. So that just set me off completely. But um, I was surprised by the amount of laughter in the film, Mike, because you know he, he's a man who can hardly move, but over a meal with his partner, she's cacking herself for having this beautiful time together. Uh, how can palliative care support those? experiences to happen more instead of people having those grim times when they're by themselves feeling unsupported. I love that you laughed even as you've probably watched it um, just Definitely. by yourself or with a small group and we've seen that in audiences this week you know riotous laughter you know and people you know describing the film as joyful and uplifting and that's exactly what we were hoping to do which is to make it safer to turn your mind to a very difficult subject um, uh, and it's something that 
we naturally avoid. But if we avoid it and don't talk about it, um, it can cause us all types of problems in terms of ending up in ambulances and emergency departments, etc. towards the end of our lives. And most of us don't actually want that. No. Well, and it's interesting too because, I mean, the, the, the impending deaths that you present in the film cover a variety of experiences. But as we know, some deaths can be very difficult, very painful, very undignified. How can palliative care help people in that situation to extract as much of the joy and peace and being present in the moment as possible. Yeah, so go ahead, Sam. Well, it's inter- the word you mentioned, dignified. Um, I think when you watch the film, you realise um, in each of those stories, you're almost watching a love story in each of those amazing stories. And I think everyone in that film has a dignified death. And that's because through palliative care, they've been able to discuss their wishes, but also discuss it with their carers or their families. And it's so critical that that happens ahead of time because then um, they're not being raced off to an emergency. They're actually choosing how they want to die. And there's some amazing choices that are made in that film. And um, what... When I say the reason the laughter is there is because you're just seeing life is bittersweet and there is laughter. We were laughing every day, smiling every day with Marmaduke because he wanted to be entertained. And you create a cocoon of love if you're able to do that. It is possible. And so in those moments, everything can come up. The smallest moment can be extraordinary. Yes, you you can take the conversations you have in that time away with you for the rest of your life, I think. Simon, some of the choices that people made in the film about how they wanted to spend their days were really interesting. One guy just wanted to play tennis. I mean, that was lovely. But when you talk about the um, the decisions made, not just by the person, by the families, uh, with the Indigenous people that you followed, it was almost a community-wide set of decisions, wasn't it? It was. And I think it was... uh, extraordinary footage um, and it's showing where the the decisions were made they were discussing um, through advanced care planning um, if it comes to the end where do they actually want to spend their final time do they want to be raced off to the local hospital in that instance it's up in Darwin and you actually see discussions where they're saying no I want to stay on country and it's so important that those discussions and that freedom is uh, created. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the healthcare system is usually about keeping people inside. And one of the workers there was like, these old people have you been used to being outside every day. That's what they want. They want to be outside. How good is the health system at adapting to those choices that might even surprise them at the end of people's lives? I, I think it's a it's a... A growing challenge in that, um, for example, I was conscious the reason I'm a, um, an advocate in palliative care is we had an extraordinary experience, but I, I'm conscious that that was in metropolitan Melbourne, great support from the Royal Children's Hospital. So um, in a way, certainly with Highside Road, there's a certain privilege there because if I'd lived in a, a different state or maybe a different postcode in regional or rural Victoria, I may not have had the same access. So that's also what the film's trying to do, um, trying to raise awareness, um, show what's possible at the end of life so that wherever you are across the country, whatever age, 
whether you're in aged care or you're a young child, you have access to palliative care support. I was struck by reading how uh, I think four in five of palliative care staff work in cities, so that makes things very different for people in the country. Uh, what uh, needs to happen, Mike Hill, in your view, when it comes to staffing? I mean, you've put a lot of effort into making this film to represent people's experiences and show how it could be at its best. What needs to change? I think we need to do end of life in Australia like we do start of life, where it's much more scaffolded, you know, from before the birth of a child through the birth and afterwards, so that there's more discussion and planning uh, and there's more resources available for all Australians like we do at start of life. That's something that we can aspire to. We also know that only one in 50 people in residential aged care actually get access to palliative care. One in 50? That's a very shocking statistic. I know. So we need to get that sorted out right away. And something we heard over and over again was there's not enough integration of palliative care services into other types of health services in the community and elsewhere in lots of pockets of Australia. So we also need to get that sorted out. What would that look like? Are we talking just about the abstract idea that, you know, we we think of palliative care as the end point separate from everything else and, and we don't talk about it until it's quite late in the piece? Or, or are we talking about a, a more kind of practical way of thinking about it? When it looks good, it means that the services are communicating all the time about patients and what they need and where they are on their journey because they might be coming in and out of a um, hospice for example for months and years um, going back into community care and sometimes being in hospital so you need to track people through that journey and make sure that um, the health professionals looking after them know what's happening with that person and that's the integration piece and it works better in some places than others. And is it just about throwing more money in, Mike? Because we've been talking already today on Life Matters about childcare and aged care. There are so many sectors crying out for extra funding. Do we need to just throw another bucket of money at palliative care? The first thing is we need to organise ourselves better. So most of the people who are expert in this field say start off with integration because there's efficiencies there and we can improve at it. And the health economists tell us that we save money when we invest in palliative care because we keep people out of ambulances, emergency departments, expensive intensive care units where they often don't want to be anywhere. No, no one wants to be there, do they? I don't. No. (laughs) And it was really interesting in the film to hear from the head of the emergency department at St Vincent's in Melbourne, and he was saying, the last place I'd want to be in my last days is in my emergency department, as good as that is, that's not where I'd want to be at the end of my life. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it was it him that was saying, you know, I, I ask at the, those crucial moments in my family's journey towards death, what is a good death? Is that something we can generalise about? Well, I think that's so individual. It's like, you know, what's a good life? And it's going to be different for everyone. And we see some really entertaining stories in the film about how people do their last chapter in ways that are bespoke to them. And we need to respond to that firstly as a society um, and then secondly make sure the health service is working with our wishes. Some really lovely uh, Facebook messages and texts came in on this Bridget said on Facebook, a good death would be pain free, at home, loved ones around, friends singing gentle Kirtan, which I looked it up, it's a call and response style song or chant set to music with uh, multiple singers reciting or describing a legend or expressing loving devotion to a deity, so that's Bridget's chosen spiritual path. And Nancy says the kind of death she would like would be the one shown on Soylent Green, (laughs) which I found surprising, but she says, choice of music, nature film, drift away, holding my best friend's hand. So, you know, it came back to a place I could totally go with. Simon? Well, it's interesting. Um, My son Marmaduke, he died 
at home in his own room, surrounded by beautiful colours, all the familiar sounds and smells he was used to. He had a sibling lying in his bed morning and night for five weeks. And so at no point um, was he alone. There was always contact. And I remember talking to a room full of social workers that work in palliative care. And I'd, I'd, I'd explained the background to Marmaduke and somebody put their hand up and they said, what you're describing is like a cocoon of love. And she said, that actually sounds how we all want to die. I just wonder if we have the courage to ask for it. We're too frightened to ask for what we want and to be held. Well, I think there's a lot of older people who are becoming very clear-eyed about what the future holds, saying very loudly, that's what yes. I want. And when you said contact, you touched your hand, and, and that's exactly what a lot of people want. They want that skin-to-skin -skin contact from a loved one at the end. It's, it's been fascinating watching the film. Lovely to talk to you both. Thanks so much for coming into the Life Matters studio today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Mike Hill is the director of this film called Live the Life You Please. It's a documentary, well worth a look, really funny and powerful and fascinating. And Simon Waring is the presenter. He's a father and an advocate in palliative care as well. And he'll be appearing on Insight on SBS next week as well. LiveTheLifeYouPlease.com if you'd like more information about that film. Well, if you end up living to 100, how would you feel about a teenager coming over to paint your portrait? We'll hear about the impact those relationships are having through a very unusual art project up next. Come in, come in. You desire diversion and entertainment. In the future, I see you entertaining yourself with podcasts on the ABC Listen app, going deep into conversations, delving into stories on days like these, and cackling away to Roy and HG. <laughs> that is all. I don't want your money. The ABC Listen app is as free as laughter. <laughs> now go and download the ABC Listen app. There are 3,700 of them living in Australia right now and more every year. I'm talking about centenarians, people who've lived to the grand old age of 100 and beyond. It's a pretty special club. And in recent years, an intergenerational art project has been partnering teenagers with centenarians to paint their portrait. That's resulted in a travelling exhibition which is showing in Canberra right now. All Up, the Centenarian Portrait Project by Teenagers has delivered 465 works of art, which must make Rose Connors dance very happy. She's created this project. Rose, welcome. Thanks so much for having us. Great to have you on the show. Welcome too to Brian Winspear and Mac Brown, who paired up to create one of the portraits. Brian, Mac, hello to you. Yes, hello, Rose. Yeah, how are you? Great to have you all three together. Rose, I'll start with you. Why did you decide this would be a good thing to do, send teenagers off to hang out with older people and make art? <laughs> um, look, I was inspired by a personal experience that I had when I was living overseas in my 20s. I'd uh, been in, uh, in Berlin for about six months and, and one day um, – I realised I'd only been spending time with people under the age of 35 and I thought it was a strange way, A, to live, but B, to get a thorough and holistic sense of a new city. How could I do that if I was only spending time with one demographic? So I looked around and I found an intergenerational program called Friends of Old People. Terrible name, but fabulous program that partnered up um, a younger person with um, 
for someone who was older, who was experiencing some form of loneliness. And then uh, I began visiting uh, Frau Matty's on a weekly basis. And what began with um, uh, her frustration with my terrible German pronunciation at the time uh, led to her sharing um, the most incredible personal accounts of her life um, in East Germany, East Berlin, um, and also uh, surviving the bomb that was dropped in Dresden uh, when she was a young child in 1945. So I just walked away from that experience and thought, my gosh, we are missing out not having intergenerational friendships outside of the the typical family unit. Um, And I started thinking about ways to connect younger people with older people, ways to honour our most senior citizens. And um, yeah, I came up with this idea. We're speaking with Rose Connors Dance. She is the creator of this centenarian portrait project by teenagers and the creative director of Embraced, a socially driven arts enterprise. Uh, Rose, what were the challenges involved uh, in pairing up uh, older people who are able and willing to sit for this portrait and younger people who were interested in painting them? Yeah, well, I think probably the biggest challenge we've faced um, is dealing with COVID, as you can imagine. Uh, we had to take a two-year hiatus in the middle of the program um, and wait until there was um, vaccines um, available and then um, ensure that all our participants were vaccinated. But um, the poor um, South Australian project um it was uh, the peak of, of, of COVID there. So we were rescheduling um, a lot and that was that was difficult uh, for participants and a lot of patience was, was required to be involved. We had some pairs who were connecting over Zoom and we've had some really great results come of that. Um, but in some instances, Zoom isn't um, possible for some people. So um, a lot of attention to detail to each pair as to how it's going to work um, dealing with COVID and just being being willing to reschedule a lot, as you can imagine, with aged care facilities going in and out of lockdowns and also um, young people or their family or their schools also going uh, having waves of COVID hitting. So I think that's probably been um, the biggest challenge for the project. Yes. Um, we also, when we match up our young people with our centenarians, uh, sometimes we look at common languages other than ling- than, than English, common experiences, um, and then sometimes it comes down to geography as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's there's a lot to think about when when pairing when pairing um, our teenagers with our centenarians. But it's yeah. a very exciting process. It's a privilege to to be a part of, and um, being there when we introduce a teenager to a centenarian is um, very exciting and. Um, beautiful kind of thing to witness. Well, let's hear from Brian and Mac about how that went. Brian, when we were talking about the fact that you're 102, one of my producers thought perhaps there was some hyperbole going on there, but no, you're you're really 102. How did you feel about being a portrait subject based on your age? Um, well, it was a great compliment, really, but, but I'm just lucky that, that I joined the Air Force um, um, when I was 19 and um, and then I had five years in the Air Force and I, I had one chance in four of coming home and so the story that Rose tell, told you is is fairly true but nobody told me that, that when I got to 100 I'd have a lot more girlfriends 
because every, every, everyone wanted to dance with someone over 100. <laughs> and, 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 and I was a terrible dancer anyway. But, but at any rate, I'm enjoying my living of all, living alone. I lost a wife to three, uh, seven or eight months ago. I'm sorry, uh, Brian. So just li- living alone in Hobart, and but I've got lots of neighbours that bring in leftover foods and all those sort of and, things. And uh, Brian, what was it like having Matt come into your life and and decide to paint your portrait? Uh, well, it was a, just another another example of, of all the things I had to do because because I'm the last uh, survivor. Of the first bombing of Darwin, and, and 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 that meant I had to attend a lot of uh, a, a lot of functions, and also I'm um, I'm um, I'm I'm a, uh, a bowler, and I'm a life member of two two bowling clubs, one here and one in the Queensland, and so there's a lot a lot of complications going. Well, yeah, you're in demand, Brian. Understand that yeah. you, you visited Darwin last year for the 80th anniversary of the Darwin bombing, and and that your uniform still fits you, which must be lovely. What yep. was that like, though, going to Darwin? A bit emotional. It, 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 it was fabulous because there were there was ten thousand visitors there, come from all over Australia, and 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 every every. Um, uh, important p- person in Australia was there, from the Governor General's down, and um, and they made a big fuss of me because I was the last one to to still be wandering around about the uniform, and and on um, on many occasions they they gave me a lot of loud claps. Well, if and, I were um, you, Brian, I would milk that for all it's worth. If I'm 102, I want to make sure I'm the centre of attention at all times. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mac Brown, you... Yeah, well, you'll, you'll, you'll get there soon. Excellent. I'm <laughs> going to take that optimism and run with it for the next few decades. Mac, yeah. what was it like meeting Brian and, and deciding how to how to do his portrait? Uh, well, Brian, as he heard, is a World War II veteran, Um he still drives, walks around, lives independently. Um, and on top of that, he's incredibly welcoming and funny and lively. Um, Brian is very proud of his time in the Air Force and still maintains a strong connection with them. So drawing Brian in his uniform, I felt, was a great way to express that history. Um, well, and I noticed that he's smiling in his portrait. Was, it, was yeah. that something that he does a lot? Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Um yeah, I, I felt um, drawing Brian in black and white allowed me to get a lot of detail and depth, not only in the drawing, but in him as a subject. Um, using graphite and charcoal to create a realistic photo um, or portrait of Brian's joyful personality, um, yeah, I felt was a really good idea. Well, Mac, had you had the chance to hang out with many older people before you met Brian? Uh, yeah, well, I had... I'd. My grandparents live up north and um, there are lots of family friends that we um, communicate with, but nothing like Brian. Um, So getting a chance to meet a centenarian, uh, I felt quite excited by. I became eager to meet someone with so much history. Well, was there anything surprising that you learned during your conversations with Brian? Uh, Well, his time in the military, um, 
definitely shocked me. But um, yeah, it's very interesting, very fascinating to get a perspective from somebody who's gone through all that was very, very interesting. But what I didn't expect was his hospitality and his um, personality to just be so welcoming. Um, it's definitely shocked by that. And did he teach you the secret of his excellent date slice? <laughs> no, no, no. Oh. But I, I was lucky enough to taste it. Oh, good. We're speaking with Mac Brown and Brian Winspear, who were the two halves of a portrait created by Mac of Brian for this project, the Centenarian Portrait Project by Teenagers. Rose Connors Dance is the, the creator of that project and the creative director of Embraced, which is a socially driven arts enterprise. Um, Brian, your late wife was an artist and you still have hundreds of her paintings, I understand. Did she, yeah, that's right. Yep. Did, she, did she ever paint you? Uh, y- y- yes, but it wasn't a pet on what Matt did. That that painting he did of mine was 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 completely out of this world. And, and so, uh, and, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that it will do. It'll it'll do well with the four hundred odd applicants that are coming in from all over Australia. Well, yes, 465, I understand. That's huge. Rose, the, yeah. the, the portraits have been rolled out from state to state over the last few years and they're on show in Canberra at the moment until early July. Can people in other places view them online at all? Um, we did have a virtual tour on uh, Sunday and we will also have uh, an online line um, tour that we will be getting getting onto our website um, in the coming weeks um, as well. Excellent stuff. Yeah, well, I've got a trip coming up to Canberra to, uh, for, for other purposes and so I'll, I'll have a look at all the displays up there. Brian, you've travelled more than I have in the last few years. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I, I, I'll have to have you been to Timbuktu yet? <laughs> no, I haven't. I think there's a lot of things you've done that I've never done and probably never will. Yeah, well, I was, I was, I was very happy too because the Australian government gave me a free trip to Canberra to study study um, uh, hotel management uh, yeah, for three months with all expenses paid. Wow. And, uh, and that was a bonus because there were 26 other entries from all around the Pacific area. And what do you, and, and, you plan to do with those skills, Brian? Uh, well, I use them because I I, I just like build, building things and I, I started off when I got out of the Air Force by building one, one motel at Bishnow on the east coast of Taz and then I liked that so I went on and built another 10 all around Tas- Tasmania and then I build another another 20 round Australia so I've you know and 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 I had a lot of girlfriends to help me oh yes well <laughs> you need them to help but just Brian you've blown a few stereotypes of older people out of the water today just in our short discussion here on Life Matters I think I have to ask Brian before we finish up what would you say the secret was to a long life I mean is it just having lots of girlfriends or, or is there something more yeah, well, the only reason I joined the Air Force was because they had a blue, blue, blue uniform. Mm-hmm. But when I got in, they made put me in the khaki one, so I got done <laughs> there. But I've got, I've got a lot of carers and a lot of, a lot of interesting people 
um, help helping me with my ten pills a day I've got to take, and and I've never never been in hospital overnight yet, uh, and, and also you know my 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 blood tests come out. All right, even though I have four spoonfuls of sugar in all my coffee. Oh, that's my life goal now. I'm going to get to 102 and I'm going to have four spoonfuls of sugar in all my coffees. I have to ask you too, Mac, before we finish up, are there things yeah. you took away from this experience and your conversations with Brian that that uh, might make you kind of walk through life a little differently now? Yeah, no, absolutely. I uh, Learning from Brian's experiences and what he's told me in his stories uh, is to really appreciate um, life and what what it gives you, you know, um, and it's kind of become an eye-opener for me and for others and to appreciate others a lot more. You know, seeing somebody that's older is, is such a, a pleasure to meet and chat with them and, um, in so many ways. It's been wonderful to chat with you all today too and all the best with the project, Brian. I hope you and Brian and Mac, I hope your portrait scoops all the prizes. Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much. Thanks. Thank you. Rose Connor's dance created the Centenarian Portrait Project by Teenagers on show in Canberra right now. And as you heard, there'll be a virtual tour at some point as well. She's the creative director of Embraced, a socially driven arts enterprise. Brian Winspear agreed to let Mac Brown immortalise him and was very happy with the result. You're listening to Life Matters on ABC RN. One text, whole families used to care for elderly relatives at home until they died. Now we put them in homes and create programs to connect them to others. Interesting. On palliative care too, uh, which, you know, is quite an interesting transition, helping my 56-year-old husband have the death at home he wanted is something I'm proud of, says Catherine. I couldn't have done it without the palliative care team. Once they were involved, we were able to create space for that good death, which for us was calm and joyous. We also talked about low wages in aged care and in childcare. Uh, Another text on that, childcare should never have been privatised in the 1980s. The community sector ran a far more ethical model but was swamped by commercial providers. Services services that prioritised education for children over hours away from parents and profit lost out. It should now be re-regulated so funding is spent on children, not profit, and private providers are pushed out. On other sectors too, with low wages, one text says disability workers get paid the same. This doesn't work with complex clients requiring one-on-one or two-on-one staffing to a client at risk of assault. And I think that's in reference to our discussion about productivity and how you measure that. Some really powerful opinions, some really powerful stories coming through on Life Matters today. Thank you for your contributions. Time is money, we're told. It's a very pervasive and powerful way of thinking in our society, but it's quite a recent idea, historically speaking. Is there a way to wrench our ideas about time and how we spend it around to something more healthy, more holistic, more serene? Instead of living in the situation we have now where some people own their own time and others don't. Jenny O'Dell thinks we can do this. She'll tell us her ideas next time on Life Matters about how we can reclaim our time. I'm Hilary Harper. I'll catch you then.
been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.